The term rabbi means teacher. And I'll admit, I love to sit at the foot of a good teacher. Someone who can weave together stories with deep truths and philosophical concepts. Think of today's conversation like that. Like being enveloped in a cozy chair alongside a most humble but brilliant teacher. You'll find yourself drawn into a good story and then realize that what you're hearing is a universal truth. When I was a teenager, my mom would come into my room Friday afternoon and she would say, Brad, I want you to go visit your grandmother tonight. And of course, I was 16. I hated that. I knew what I wanted to do Friday night. It did not involve my grandmother. And and here's the killer line. My mother, as she was walking out, would say, I'm not going to tell you you have to do it. I know you'll do what's right. I'm in conversation today with Rabbi Dr. Bradley Shavit Artson. He holds the Abner and Roslyn Goldstein Dean's Chair at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. He's Vice President of the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. Uh, Rabbi Bradley has long been a passionate advocate for social justice and human dignity, diversity and inclusion. He wrote a book on Jewish teachings on war, peace, nuclear annihilation back in the 80s and became a leading voice advocating for LGBT marriage and ordination in the 90s. He's published and spoken widely on environmental ethics, uh, special needs inclusion, racial and economic justice, cultural and religious dialogue and cooperation, and working for a just and secure peace for Israel and the Middle East. His scholarly fields are Jewish philosophy and theology, particularly a process approach. He's author of 11 books and countless articles. Uh, and is married to Alana, and together they parent two children, uh, who I think are getting to be quite grown up at this point. They are already there. <laughs> so welcome, Rabbi. So good to be with you today. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you too, and I'm glad we can have a conversation together. I was in conversation recently with a marketing expert, and he said to me that the church has a God problem. And, and I think what he was meaning is that religious um, expressions that are progressive and seek to be relevant today are not getting their word out to the public, that those who might be interested in spiritual things aren't finding it in religion. Is, are you finding that's the case in the Jewish tradition too? You know, I think this is bigger than any particular group within the world. The, the, the shrillest voices are the most extreme. And so the people who advocate that all religion is toxic and the people that advocate that the only true religion is theirs, they have a message that's simple and clear and there's a lot of people who would rather be definitely wrong than possibly right. So I think this is bigger than just Christianity, just Islam, just Judaism, just anybody. When you offer a humane way of walking wisdom in the world, you're not offering certainty. You're offering meaning and connection and a life of service um, and that's harder to market. And if our goal is marketing, we're going to, I think, be disappointed again and again and again. And so your, um, your concern might not be so much with, um, with how you 
market yourself, but living a life that's committed to, to those values? So here's the good news that comes wrapped up in bad news. Hmm. We will, all of us, be forgotten. And even the most famous of us will be forgotten. Who was the president that Harriet Tubman got to visit in the White House? Nobody knows his name. I just thought it was because I was Canadian, but... No, I understand. No. So, you know, but the most powerful man in the United States, nobody's heard of him. Wow. And in 6,000 years, no one will have heard of any of us. So the motivation for how we live our life has to be now. There's a wonderful Jewish teaching. Um, I heard it in the name of Maimonides, who was a great sage in the 1200s. He says that we think of the world to come as chronologically after we die. But if it's really eternity, then it's always. It's right now. It's that we're so distracted that we don't know we're already in it. And so it's a matter of mindset. Can we live in the world of eternity now? And can we make our decisions not based on the immediate pressing moment, but in the light of who do I want to look back on and say, wow, that was me. And that's about self-gratification. And, and, and that's about if we are known by God and loved by a few, hmm. then that's enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Known by God and loved by a few. Yeah. Now, this isn't where I was going to go right away, but I, I can't help but ask you, you're a wonderful storyteller, which I, I assume you came by naturally and have nurtured in your vocation. You tell a story about the one time that your son called you on the phone. Yeah. When we talk about being loved by a few, I, I know he is in your few. Uh, to me, it's one of the most powerful stories I've heard in a long time. Can are, are you willing sure. to and, tell and, people about that call? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And to this day, I don't know how it happened. My son Jacob um, has a pretty severe version of autism, so um, he's got real motor challenges, and he has issues of how he maintains his composure, and he struggles with getting words out. Several years ago, we found a means of communication called facilitated communication, and that was for us miraculous. He's able to type at a very sophisticated level. If people want to go online and type in Jacob Artson in Google, they will find some beautiful, beautiful essays that he's written. So he's a deep thinker, but you wouldn't know it by looking. And one of the ways that that manifests is he's never made a phone call his whole life. We got him a phone so that he could watch videos. He's able, he figured that out by himself. He can go onto YouTube and find the videos he wants. I don't know how. Yeah, we can't, but. <laughs> and one day I was in the middle of a meeting and my phone rang and I always check because it could be my wife, it could be my daughter. And, and it was Jacob. And, and I, of course, was thrilled and didn't, and I said, hello, is this, Jacob, this is Abba. And I heard him on the other end of the phone. And 
we didn't really talk. I just said, I love you. And I'm so glad you called. And um, he's never done it since. Like, I still don't know what that was. Um, but, but you realize what a miracle it is to get a call when someone who you didn't think could call you calls. Yeah. Or when someone who used to be able to can't anymore. That gets back to what I was talking about. Can we live in eternity in the present? Or do we need to have it taken away from us before we realize how precious it is? How do you practice how uh, living in eternity in the moment? Because I bet you're not there every second. I mean, please tell well, us. I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty bad at it. You know, it's, it's, but what I'm good at is talking to myself. Uh, I'm good at saying, is this going to matter in 10 years? this thing that's got you all tied up in knots. And think about 10 years ago, something like this. And is that keeping you awake now? No, it's not. So I try to recenter myself. And one of the, one of the beautiful things that traditional Judaism offers is that a, an observant Jew is commanded to pray three times a day. Um, and I don't mean by that spontaneous prayer, that's as many times as you need. Um, I mean you're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day. So your day is one long expression of thank you, thank you, thank you. But then three times a day, you take up the prayer book and you offer the statutory prayers of morning, evening, and afternoon. Mm. And I, and for me, that's a cleansing and a recentering. So, you know, my tradition gives me many, many moments to remember what I'm supposed to be focused on and to try to correct myself from the distractions that we all slip into. It's just part of being human. You can't help it. Yes. Well, and that's, you know, I've heard you talk about this idea that, um, that there's some power in understanding there to be one God and you've described it as one mindfulness from which we yes. all emerge. Uh, and that kind of keeps us accountable to, to our own morality. It doesn't, it means we can't just answer to the flavor of the day. Well, so here's the complication to that. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe there is a mind that has summoned everything into becoming and that all of us, part of a cacophonous creation, are part creators too, so that we have a say in how this creation unfolds what actuality becomes real, which version of the future becomes the present. Um, and I do believe that God is inviting us, luring us towards an optimal choice of what future to make real. But there's also no way of hiding the fact that it's our choices that contribute to that decision. So the fact that there's one God doesn't mean we can know that one God absolutely. We can only know that one God through our own hearts, through our own minds, through our own life experiences. Mm -hmm. But being aware that it's not about simply self-discovery, but it's about finding your truest self, which is the place in you that has God's fingerprint, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, that, I think, is a lifelong task and an every moment job. Well, and I think that gets to the heart of what um, 
what so many people are striving for and hungry for these days. And we, um, we keep trying to get in touch with that true self uh, through all sorts of means. (laughs) We fill that place up with. (laughs) That's right. One of the challenges I think that, you know, I'd honestly love to hear your thoughts on, because it's, it's very different on the Jewish side than what it looks like on the Christian side Mm -hmm. is to the extent that Christianity self-defines as a creed, a faith, a set of practices, Mm -hmm. then if you don't have the faith, you're kind of outside. Whereas because Judaism only became a religion, it really started as the life of the Jewish people. So it was never disembodied. It was never an abstraction. It was always the way Jews lived and the way Jews served and the way Jews connect to the world. Mm which meant that there were various people who tried to write catechisms or dogmas, but they were never universally accepted. Mm -hmm. So you can be a Jewish atheist and be very Jewish. Um, And and that I take as a path in, Mm -hmm. right? That I don't need to have a metaphysical stumbling block at the beginning of someone's journey. I, I can just say here, Let me tell you about a way to sanctify the Sabbath day. Let me talk to you about a blessing you say over wine or a bread you can make on Friday night. And those tangible things, there's a low entry bar, right? You don't have to commit. Yeah, no, we've got it all backwards. I mean, I I will own that. Um, And what's interesting is in the Christian tradition, there's been this um, uh, recent shift to suggest uh, we can't start with creeds, you don't, you don't believe first, you, you have to create a a sense of belonging first, or you you belong here. Um, So yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Yes. And if I could just preach to the to the pastor. Yeah. um, You know, I've often thought that I could fairly easily be a follower of Jesus. I just couldn't be a Christian. You know, you sound like half the people in my pews. <laughs> well, that's thank you. I so I have a place to go when I'm in Vancouver. Um, that that you know, and and what's striking when I read his words, they're not about creed. They're about how we treat each other. They're about how we love God and love our fellow human being. And both of those, by the way, Jesus is quoting the book of Leviticus, Mm -hmm. right? So he's being a good Jew and holding up Torah as his guide. And then he's giving it a humane application. Um, And and I've I've often thought that um, in some ways, one of the one of the things that looked like a Christian triumph was actually a big its biggest challenge, which is it succeeded so powerfully mm-hmm. that it couldn't help taking on the clothing of empire. Yes. And and in a sense, the Jews postponed that challenge. We're wrestling with that now. But you know, for a long time we were weak and getting kicked around all the time. So we just had to hold on to the values that we were offered in scripture. Um, And so loving God, loving our neighbor, loving each other. um, You know, there's a wonderful teaching by an 18th century rabbi from middle Europe who taught that the most important commandment in the Torah is that you have to lift the donkey of your enemy when it falls. And he said, every other commandment is practice for that. (laughs) Right. You, you lift your, your, your enemy's fallen pack animal. 
Well, that's much more helpful to get your head around than just loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, (laughs) that's right. It's too abstract, right? Yeah. So I think that's one of the ways to speak to today is to not start with great, big, lofty systems. Mm -hmm. And, And honestly, that starts with modeling something even more than what words come out of our mouth. If they don't see our faith in the way we treat strangers, in the way we speak when we don't think we're being heard. There's a fascinating, this is from your location. I think it was, there were a bunch of parrots who had to be taken out of the main zoo. Okay. I forget, it may have been in England, I'm not sure. There were four gray parrots who had to be taken out of the zoo because they would mock people who were watching them and then laugh at them. Now, they don't know what they're doing necessarily when they're laughing. They're imitating the people who were training them, who were around them all the time, which means what would it be like if there was always a parrot in the room who was going to mock you at your worst comment? (laughs) Wouldn't you change how you spoke, how how you interacted? Right. I bet those zookeepers are feeling pretty embarrassed now because there's the living recording of their <laughs> they're mocking the people who come to the zoo. And 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 I think that if we could show people by how we speak when we're not on, you know, when you're not being the pastor, when I'm not being the rabbi, yeah, that's when our faith is more visible. Because everyone can play the part of a pastor or a rabbi. Well, what I actually wonder, so I mean, I always, I think we have a lot of shame that we carry around. So um, there's that piece. But if you take that example a step further of, uh, okay, let's imagine there's a parrot in the room. What if instead of then joining the chorus of people who laugh at the parrot trainers, we actually create space to unpack. Why is it that I'm doing this behavior? What is not being fed in me? That's exactly right. That's right. So it's an endless loop. Yeah. Because it becomes so tempting to mock them, right? Instead of saying, what is it about the way we've structured the world Mm -hmm. so that they're so unfulfilled, so empty in what they do, that it isn't celebratory? It's not joyous. It's not, we've stripped it of meaning. And and I think we leave each other raw. And then we respond to that rawness with viciousness, which comes out of fear. It comes out of our own sense of vulnerability. But but if we could help each other, you know, and there I'll tell you my piece of holy envy. I wish that my scripture said that God is love. You know, that's a good line. Whoever, whoever penned that one really should be marketing that stuff. Um, because that's at the core of my belief. I really do believe that we underestimate the nature of God's love. And, and we don't give it to ourselves. You know, it's, not, it's just that, that we're not compassionate to each other. I love the fact that Leviticus, the Torah, says that you have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, because if the sentence had stopped with "love your neighbor," that would just be another chore. Yeah, but it's an invitation. You can't really love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. Precisely. Yeah. Now, 
this love that you've found in uh, your faith and your tradition, uh, you grew up an atheist. Yes. Has it, has something been added to it by falling into a, a yeah. faith component of your Jewish tradition? So, you know, it's <laughs> intriguing to me because I now I run a rabbinical school. So I'm, I'm all the time helping people become rabbis. And, and I often thank God, literally, that I was an atheist growing up because I had no bad religion to get rid of. Yes. I, I didn't have an, an abusive experience of religious school. I didn't have a smug, judgmental clergy member who made everyone miserable. Like I, I didn't have, I was a blank slate. So I was able to come to it as an adult. And, and interestingly, I came to it because of well, internal things and a roommate who was a devout Christian um, and one of the kindest people I've ever met. And his Christianity was central to why he was so kind. And I knew that I couldn't believe what he believed, but I knew I wanted to explore the possibility. Mm-hmm. So I did fall into religion as a 20-year-old, which meant I could read it on my own terms. I don't have orthodoxy. I don't have any imposition in my head talking to me and saying, no, 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 what you're doing is inauthentic. And that does make it much easier for me because I now have direct access to the classical sources by which I mean the Bible, the Talmud, Midrash, Mishnah, great rabbinic compilations. Um, I can read them for myself. I I don't need to rely on someone's telling me what they really mean. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to smell out when people impose their own harshness into their interpretations. So, yeah, that was it was a good move to not have it as a kid and then be able to choose it as an adult. And then I just feel so blessed to be able to put that kind of a humane voice. And here I want to say there's a way in which you and I are members of a different religion if you put the doctrine as the noun. Hmm. Right. So you're a kind of process Christian. I'm a kind of process Jew, Mm -hmm. but it's just as easy to reverse the two and say, I'm a Jewish process and you're a Christian process. And then we're actually practicing the same religion with slightly different flavor. Yes. Yeah. And I think that may be, if I'm really honest, closer to the truth. Right. When I talk to people who are active Christians, but who see Christianity through a Whiteheadian lens, through process theology, mm-hmm. they're using different metaphor systems for very congenial ideas. When I listen to John Cobb, who's the great granddaddy of mm-hmm. current process thought, uh, and one of the kindest Methodist ministers, kindest human beings I've ever met, he was talking about Jesus to me and who Jesus is for him, and he is a lover of Jesus. And at some point I said, you know, your Jesus is a Rebbe. Mm-hmm. And he said, what's a Rebbe? And I said, well, a Rebbe is your rabbi, is a person who is so transparent to God's lure that you watch the way your Rebbe acts and then you imitate your Rebbe. Mm. And he loved that. I mean, I've heard him now say to other people, Jesus is my Rebbe. (laughs) Um, You should be getting a 
caught up that. <laughs> but, it, but what it means is, I think we allow our denominational and doctrinal labels to act as dividers yeah. when they're not. They're just, they're a shorthand for the cluster of texts and practices and metaphors that we clothe the core of our faith in. Hmm. Well, and I think that that's one of the messages that isn't getting out there very much. (laughs) I'm Beth Hayward. You're listening to Souls and Souls, and I'm in conversation today with Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson. This idea of lore, I would just like a little more about that for for people who have only heard that God is either uh, judgmental or all powerful. What, what, tell us about that idea. Great. So, so, so um, this is basic for people who are yep. already familiar with process, but it's news for others. Mm-hmm. Um, although what's interesting is I do think in many ways, when I explain this, I'm aware that what I'm doing is returning a lost object. Many of the people who go to your church, many of the people who go to the congregations I serve already think this, they just don't know they're allowed to. Mm-hmm. So what we can do is give them permission to believe what they already know. And that core is that God does not and cannot use coercive power. God isn't this big angry bully in the sky, that what God is, is a cosmic companion. God is a cosmic lover who invites us to make optimal choices. And here I want to go beyond Whitehead and say, I define optimal in terms of experience, relationship, compassion, and justice, right? That in those things, there's an optimal choice at any moment. And that God is inviting us to make that optimal choice and planting that within us so that we know what the optimal choice is. And then we have the power because God cannot constrain our interiority. Everything that's created has its own internal life and has to make its own free decision influenced by God saying, letting you know, and you have an intuition of what the optimal choice is. I have a story for that. When I was a teenager, my mom would come into my room Friday afternoon and she would say, Brad, I want you to go visit your grandmother tonight. And of course I was 16. I hated that. I knew what I wanted to do Friday night. It did not involve my grandmother. (laughs) And And here's the killer line. My mother, as she was walking out, would say, I'm not going to tell you you have to do it. I know you'll do what's right. Mm -hmm. I hated that moment. Because if she had made it a rule, I could have fought her. I'm not going. You can't make me. But she didn't. She said, I know you'll make the right choice. And and, and so I was doomed. It was inevitable that, of course, I would, I'm not doing it. And then. I would find myself driving down to Hillsboro to see my grandmother. And now I'm so thankful to God and my mother for that lure. Mm. That's how I think God works with each of us. At every moment, we have an intuition of what would be the optimal thing to do. And we're free to say, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think God is not less smart than my mother. Right? God doesn't say you must or you'll be doomed to hell forever. Mm -hmm. God says, I know you have a soul and I know that you will rise to the light. So here's the optimal choice, do what you want. Mm 
So I've heard you say that God urges the chaos of the universe towards cosmic order. And of course, that brings us back to uh, the early verses of Genesis. But for a lot of people, the world feels pretty chaotic and and yeah. just the state of the world and even the state of people's lives. Um, what what yes. does your faith have to say about that? What do we, where, where's oh, God oh, in the chaos? <laughs> so can we do a little Bible together? I would love to. All right. So, so look, if you, if you start at the beginning and, and the thing is, the problem with these verses is they're hidden where everybody looks. So everyone knows them, but they don't read them. Yes. So we're going to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, right? We're All starting right. at the very beginning. And it starts, Bereshit bara Elohim. When God began to create, et hashamayim v'etaretz, the heaven and the earth. So here's the first thing I want to say. The standard English translation mm -hmm. is not a translation. It doesn't say in the beginning. The right. King James boys got it wrong. Right. <laughs> That's good for, for people to hear. <laughs> for those of you, well, so here's the question. You know, the Brits had to assert that the King James translation was divinely inspired. But that's a whopper of a thing to claim, right? God, yeah, it is. God gave the Torah in Hebrew. The English is our take on it. So be warned, the English translation of both the Hebrew scripture and the Greek scripture is someone's interpretation. Well, and even the, uh, you know, you say King, of course, I don't read the King James version, but the one I use says the same thing and <laughs> claims to be oh, from the original. <laughs> I understand, but it's not because here's the technical note. Bereshit is a construct form. If it was in the beginning, it would say Bereshona, but it doesn't. It says Bereshit. So when God began to create, which means time had existed already. Mm -hmm. This is just the moment our story starts, right? And at the yeah. moment our story starts is the moment that God begins to create heaven. And then there's this gap in the middle that says, and the earth was unformed and void. You can hear in the Hebrew, the yeah. chaos of it. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and then it says, and a wind or a fluttering of God was over the deep, darkness okay. over the surface of the deep, Elohim and the wind or spirit of God, rachefet means to vibrate, vibrates over the face of the waters. Now, here's what I want to point out. That middle sentence, number two, mm -hmm. is the single most dangerous verse in the entire Bible. And pastors rabbis and imams skip it when they preach. Mm. They preach as though what the Bible says is when God began to create heaven and earth, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Mm -hmm. See how that sounds like an all powerful God when there's nothing suddenly makes everything by command. But that isn't what the Bible says because that middle part says before God began creating, the earth was already unformed and void. So it's there. The chaos is there. And and this Tahom stuff is, th this darkness is on the face of the deep. And it's, and, and, and here I want to point out to you, Tahom, the word for deep, mm -hmm. is from the Assyrian. Ta Tiamat is a goddess. Her carcass was killed to make the earth. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a little pagan yeah. drama right under the surface. And <laughs> it's of course true that what the Bible's telling us is that the remains of pagan religiosity undergird all religion mm. and still live, and that all creativity happens in the place where order tries to meet chaos, right? It's the undomesticated chaos mm -hmm. that is the source of creativity. It's the spirit of God fluttering over the deep, mm. right? And out of the deep inviting, and then God says, let there be light. But, but the point is, the Bible itself testifies to the presence of chaos before, during, and after. And God's creating isn't a punctuated event. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing process, right? And so that's really the message I want people to know, that when you, mm -hmm. when you think about biblical authenticity, the creating God is always creating. And the erupting chaos is always erupting. And it's never done. And we are not passive witnesses. God needs active partners. We are meant to be, in the language of the Talmud, shutafut, partners in the act of creation. So God can't do it alone. Which, yeah, of course, isn't news to me, but it sure is news to, uh, to a lot of us. And I think it's news to us in the practicality of day-to-day -day life is yeah. and, taking and could, that could empowerment. We, could, could we borrow a Christian phrase and call it good news? <laughs> right. The good news is the chaos is, has always been there. Mm -hmm. The chaos will always be there. It's not about eradicating the chaos. Mm -hmm. It's about fighting for order in your little corner, right? And if we all do that, if we all do our bit, right? And that's what I understand being made in the image of God to me, that we are also meant to flutter over the deep. And we are also meant to extract cosmos from the chaos, right? And that's our job. So when I look in my friend's life and I see chaos, my job is to say, oh, I'm being summoned. Mm -hmm. I have something to do here. When someone is feeling overwhelmed, I have something to do. And then when they see me feeling overwhelmed, then they have something to do. And we all lift each other and we all carry each other. It really is completely countercultural to the society that we have been raised in, the individualistic society, which um, tells me that these faith traditions have such richness to offer. Um, such wisdom mm -hmm. and such humanity, you know, and it got hidden in two ways. The religion became smug and imperial. Mm -hmm. And then the response against religion went to the other extreme. Mm -hmm. But both, both are extremes. Mm -hmm. so, um, so our job is to, I think, remove the fake veneer of empire 
of smugness, of an end run around wisdom. This is not a book of certitude, mm-hmm. right? This is a book of some of the most disturbing stories that have ever been gathered, right? Some of the most inspiring and frustrating individuals. I, I, I'll tell you another thing that's striking to me about the Hebrew side of it. Yeah. It's a book of failed journeys. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm always saying that the disciples never, ever seem to get it. They uh, never get it. So. But, but what's interesting is that the way the rabbis edited the order of the Hebrew Bible, the first five books has us on our way to the land of Israel. And then right when we get to the boundary of the land of Israel, we start over again. So we actually never get in. And then if you go through into the book of Joshua and you go through, the goal is to try to create a a beloved community, a just community, a covenanted community, and we fail. And so where the book ends is they go back to Egypt. So it's two circlings around. We can't get out of Egypt. We keep trying to get to the promise to get out of Egypt. And it's about how, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. But the journey, the journey is sacred. The trying is sacred and worthy. Uh, thank you, Rabbi, for, um, for sharing your heart and your wisdom with us. And, and I would say just um, opening up, not just the scriptures, but the traditions that we share uh, to folks today. Thank you so much. Really my pleasure. And uh, let me bless you and the good work you're doing and the light you're shining. We're all, we're all grateful for it. And to, to those who are listening, thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you. But, yeah, um, I could sit here all day, but it's, <laughs> it's time. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate that. And uh, you certainly brought some, some new perspective even to me today. So it's... I, Thank you. I'm Beth Hayward, and you've been listening to Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual, but not religious, and the religiously spiritual. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever your favorite place is to get your podcasts. Look for us at canadianmemorial.org under podcasts. It's June 2021, and we're taking some Sabbath rest over the next while. We'll be back in September with season two of Souls and Souls. See you then.